And I'm going to ask you to turn this morning to the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 15. Luke 15. I'm going to read a, a very well-known account this morning, uh, the account of the prodigal son, in Luke 15, verses 11 through 32. So after you have found Luke 15, stand with me. Let's uh, read it together. Luke 15, beginning in verse 11. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country. And he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found, and they began to celebrate Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, For so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that I have, all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for another opportunity to gather in your name. We thank you for a church family that is loving and encouraging. And Lord, we thank you that we can grow spiritually by being around other believers and This is your design. Lord, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for those who 
faithfully teach your word. Lord, we thank you for the truth that uh, we can build our lives on. And Lord, when it comes to the family, you have given us the principles in your word by which we can live according to your design. And we can have the kind of marriages and the kind of uh, children, the kind of extended families that you desire for us to have. And we can make a difference for generations to come if we follow your pattern. So, Lord, help us to be wise in that. Help us, by your grace, to do the things that count the most. And, Lord, we pray this morning as we think about what happens when children rebel. Lord, we pray that you help us to have your wisdom in that regard as well. So, Lord, bless this morning. Help us as we worship that our hearts would be set fully on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Ferones preferred to stay near home on holidays to avoid heavy traffic. So they spent a beautiful Labor Day afternoon playing golf at their club and ended the day with a picnic supper for the family. Everyone except for Tony. As their celebration ended and Carol Ferone quietly cleared the paper plates off the picnic table, her mind turned to her son. That was the way it always was. She could push aside the thoughts for only a little while before the wonderings and worries began to haunt her again. Now, Carol voiced her concern to her husband, Joe. Would sure be great if Tony would call. Joe patted his wife's arm. Would be nice to at least know where he was. Joe was taking a shower when the phone rang. Carol picked up the receiver and an operator said, I have a collect call from Tony Ferrone. Will you accept the charges? Before Carol could finish saying that she would, a weak voice on the other end of the line broke in. Hi, Mom. Carol asked, where are you? As Tony answered, his feeble voice began to fade. I'm so sick, Mom, and so hungry. I'm really hurting. Tell me what to do. Carol strained to catch her son's last words. Then a strong, business-like voice boomed into her ear. Ma'am, your son came dragging into my lobby here a few minutes ago and begged me to let him use our phone to call you. He's in bad shape. He's here at the Holiday Inn. And the man named the city about 150 miles from their home. You don't know how much I appreciate your kindness, sir, Carol said. May I ask you one more favor? If you could just put him up in a room, I promise we'll be there first thing in the morning to pick him up and pay you for the room and for all your troubles. But before the man could respond, Joe Ferrone picked up an extension phone and interrupted, Sir, we'll leave immediately to come and get him. He needs us now. Please keep him there for us. Then ten minutes, the entire Ferone family piled into the car and took off. When the teenage girls learned that Tony had called, they wanted to go too. The three-hour drive was a long haul after a tiring day, but an overwhelming feeling of relief and urgency drove them. They knew without being told that Tony was on drugs again. But at least they finally knew where he was. 
and that knowledge gave them hope, was far easier to deal with the reality of drug abuse than with the suspense of not knowing where Tony was or even if he was still alive. The Ferrones pulled to a stop as close as they could get to the entrance of the hotel. As they entered the lobby, they spotted Tony sprawled out on a sofa, sofa, obviously strung out. They rushed to his side. We're here, son. It's mom and dad. We're going to take you home. It was minutes before Tony rose close enough to consciousness to realize who was speaking to him. A corpse could not have looked more lifeless. His dirt-caked, matted hair hung across his sticky face. His ragged, sweat-soaked clothes were covered with filth from long days on the road. He had worn holes in the soles of both of his shoes. Joe went to the desk to settle up with the night manager and to thank him for the call. The man's pity was penetrating. Joe could read the expression on his face as clearly as if the man had said, You poor people, you're so different from what I expected. You're not scum at all. The Ferrones realized that Tony couldn't make it to the car by himself after watching his fruitless attempts to pull himself up. So they gently lifted him and carried him across the lobby to the parking lot. After his father had strapped him into the front seat, Tony slumped to his side and sank back into unconsciousness again. Joe hadn't driven a block before the stench of their son began to overwhelm them. The perspiration of days and maybe even weeks of hitchhiking, together with the vomit of the recent hours, was more than they could bear. They had to cover their noses and open all the windows for ventilation. As I drove home, Joe said, I remember thinking, I've heard so many sermons about the prodigal son in a stinking pig pen. Now, here I am holding my nose and living out that very scene. But he said, what really hit me was how thankful I was to have him back. He said, I think for the first time I knew what the father felt like in that story. This summer, we have been focusing on successful family living. We have looked at what the Spirit-filled family looks like and how God has designed the family to be. We have looked at some principles of parenting and how we can be the kind of mothers and fathers that God would have us to be. But today, we're going to continue our series on the family with a message on when your children disappoint you. What happens if things don't turn out like you planned? What if you do everything you know to do as a parent and your children reject your values and rebel against your authority? What if you fail as a parent? How should you respond? 
There are many parents today who are suffering incredible pain because their children have disappointed them. Many are suffering under a great load of guilt, feeling as if they have failed as parents. Their children did not turn out exactly the way they thought they should or the way other people thought they would. And so they lay the whole blame on their own shoulders. Have you ever noticed a family with such a good father and mother and excellent children, except for one? There's a black sheep in the family. What happened to him or her? Most parents in that situation would ask, what did we do wrong? Where did we fail? What could we have done differently? And perhaps there are those of you this morning who are suffering this kind of guilt and pain. You did all you knew to do as a parent. Oh, sure, you look back on it and there are probably things you would do differently, but for the most part, you did your best. What happened? Why didn't it turn out the way you thought it would? Literally thousands of Christian parents have had their hearts ripped out by children who have rejected every moral value, every moral standard, every aspect of godly training, and have immersed themselves in drugs, in sexual promiscuity, in drunkenness, in the occult, in homosexuality, in criminal activity, etc., etc., Others may not have gone to those extremes of rebellion, but have forsaken the Lord and His church to pursue materialism or business success or other things. Perhaps some have even become secular humanists or agnostics or atheists. Others have simply cut off the relationship and have become so completely estranged from their parents after they have left home that the parents never ever see them. Some have not spoken or written in years. But the scars are very deep in many parents' hearts and often in the hearts of the children as well. You know, the Bible is full of examples of hurting parents. The very first parents suffered the pain of seeing one son murder the other. The sons of godly men like Eli and Samuel did not follow the Lord, but did evil in the sight of God and suffered tragic deaths. The godly parents of Solomon, I mean, excuse me, of Samson, had to sit back and watch him ruin his life one step at a time. All through Scripture, we see example after example of hurt and pain inflicted by disappointing children. So that brings us to an important question this morning. Are parents responsible? Now, I I know you want a decisive, solid, firm answer on that, and so I will disappoint you by saying yes and no. I must answer that way. Because no matter how well we have done in our parenting or how rebellious our children may be, 
parents always share in the responsibility. I would be less than honest with you this morning if I said that parents are never to blame for the way their children turn out. Sometimes we are the main reason our parents, our children rebel. Sometimes it is the parents' fault. Some parents have failed to discipline properly. Others have created a child-centered family that has had a devastating effect. Others have been guilty of verbal or even physical abuse. Some have exasperated their children through hypocrisy or inconsistency. Some have been drill sergeants with no love or affirmation, etc., etc. Sometimes the parents are to blame. You see, we must face our responsibility as parents. And many want to deny that they had any part at all in their children's rebellion, but we must face up to our responsibility in that. And I think it is a very destructive philosophy that really permeates our culture today that everyone seems to always want to put the blame on someone else and not accept the responsibility for their own actions. We have a tremendous responsibility before God as to how we raise our children. But at the same time, we must be careful not to fall into the false philosophy of determinism. And I'm using that term not in a theological way, but in a sociological way. Determinism is an atheistic philosophy that says the child does not have a will or a choice of his own. Determinism says that we're all the product of our environment. If we experience the right things, then we will turn out the right way. If I don't have the right experiences, then I will turn out another way. But my friend, determinism is a false philosophy. There is no guarantee that if we do everything we should do as parents, that our children are going to turn out the way they should. Children have a will of their own. They can choose to rebel. They can choose to reject all you have taught them. They can choose to go their own way. In theological terms, we call this depravity. And it is summarized for us, I believe, in Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we've turned each one to his own way. The same thing that is true for any of us in our relationship with God is also true with our children. Any of us could choose to rebel and turn away from God and live in disobedience to Him. And the same thing can happen in our family with our children. And when that happens, the responsibility falls on the rebellious child, not on the parents. It is the child who has chosen to go his own way, and therefore the responsibility of his actions falls on him. Think about this for a moment. Have you ever noticed that God did not take the responsibility for Adam's sin? 
even though Adam tried to pin the blame on God for giving him the woman, you know, it's that woman you gave me. God did not take the blame for it. But God placed the blame squarely where it should be placed, on Adam himself. Listen, if determinism was true, we would have a problem here. Because you see, Adam was in a perfect environment. There was no sin before this. Adam literally walked with God every single day. This was an absolutely perfect environment, and yet he chose to rebel against God and do exactly as God commanded him not to do. My friend, listen. You can be an absolutely perfect parent, and your child could still rebel. And just as we have no control over what color of hair they are born with, or what kind of temperament they may have, or other genetic features that they are born with, we ultimately have no control over their wills. Oh, we might be able to control their behavior for a while, but eventually they will grow up. And we must release them, and then they must choose for themselves what they are going to do and what they're going to be. Now, I want us to look at a verse of Scripture that relates to this. So turn with me quickly to Proverbs 22.6. Proverbs 22.6. And many of you know what that is before you even get there. Very well known. Proverb. Proverbs 22.6. It says this. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, the question that I want to raise here is this. Does this verse guarantee us that if we parent as we should, that our children will stay on the right track? Is it a promise or a probability? Listen, Proverbs 22.6 is neither a promise or a probability. It is simply a proverb. According to 1 Kings 4, 29-31, Solomon was the wisest man to ever live. And one of the distinguishing traits of wisdom is insight into human behavior. A proverb is a general statement of general truth that can be applied to various circumstances in life. This statement is no less inspired by God than any other statement in the Bible. But it must be taken for the type of literature that it is, a proverb. Solomon is simply stating a truism relating to parenting. He is not declaring that salvation is a sure thing for a child whose parents train them well. Nor is he guaranteeing that a child will not rebel if he's raised properly. It's no guarantee here. The point of this proverb has more to do with the responsibility of the parent in the training of their child than it does with a guaranteed outcome. It is similar to the divine law that is given in Galatians 6, 7, whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. 
The seeds that we plant in our child's heart today, whether good or bad, will bear fruit for many years to come. In fact, that phrase, when they are old, means at least 40 years old. It's talking about the principle of sowing and reaping as it relates to our parenting and indicates that patterns which are set very early on can have an effect for a lifetime. Listen to these statistics. If both parents in a two-parent home attend church together faithfully, 72% of their children will remain faithful to the Lord. If only dad attends, 55% will remain faithful to the Lord. If only mom attends, only 15% remain faithful. And if neither parents attend, only 6% remain faithful. You see how important it is for both parents to be involved in the spiritual training of their children by example and by instruction? Even then, there's no guarantee. Yes, we can train them up in the way they should go, and we can bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, but the ultimate choice is up to their will. So what do we do if our children rebel? How should we respond? Well, I don't know a better place to turn to for God's answer on that than the biblical account that typifies the rebellious child and the hurting parent, which is the story of the prodigal son. So turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Some of you are getting worried, aren't you? We haven't even gotten to our outline yet. Most of you, no doubt, know this story of the prodigal son. And I don't have to go over it because we just read it a few minutes ago. But I want to focus this morning on the response of the father who is really the main character in this account. When Jesus told this parable, the father, of course, was intended to represent our heavenly father. That is the immediate context of the story. And yet, I believe that we can also see something here about how we as human parents should respond to our own rebellious children. And I want to read uh, just a portion of this, verses 20 through 24. Look at verse 20. And he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to the father, said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to be merry. Whenever children go astray, parents can either help or hinder the situation by how they respond. In Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, we find some principles that will guide us 
in how to respond redemptively when we are faced with a wayward child. First, the father did not repudiate his son. Look at verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The father in this parable does not disown his son. There's no trace of anger or resentment. The father simply kept loving his rebellious son. Unfortunately, many hurting parents are harboring so much resentment toward their wayward children that they're not able to express unconditional love toward them. They are perhaps ashamed and embarrassed and disillusioned. One Christian author described his feelings when his unmarried daughter came home and announced that she was pregnant. He wrote, The resentment against her was so strong, my deepest feelings were closer to hatred than to love. He wrote, Yet I felt so wrong in feeling that way. I'd always preached on love and had even written a book about John Wesley's concept of perfect, unconditional love. What this man came to know and what every hurting parent needs to remember is that unconditional love is not always an overwhelming, predominant feeling. In fact, unconditional love is not based on feelings at all. It is primarily based on the fact that God loves us that way, and therefore we're to love each other in the very same way. Unconditional love is a conscious choice, not a feeling. Sometimes it may be more resolve than it is an emotion. Parental love can be very powerful, but when you have been hurt deeply by someone who should know better, it can come to the point where it is only by the grace of God that we can express it. Well, go back to the parable. Notice, secondly, the father did not retain his son. Look at verse 11 earlier down. A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between them. Just as our heavenly Father does not force us into loving and serving Him, so the Father in this parable allowed the Son the freedom of choice to choose His own path. Now, I think we need to qualify this. The Son in this parable was a grown son, not a child's. And I don't think uh, that this is teaching that we as parents should just allow our young children to do as they please and that uh, they can choose their own way as they are growing up. This is talking about a grown son. This is talking about a young man who is ready to leave home. Ultimately, our children are headed for departure. And after they have been trained and loved and disciplined by us, they will one day leave and set out on their own. It is at this time that this parable is dealing with. It is at this point that we as parents need to give them the freedom to decide for themselves. If they don't 
have what they need as far as moral and spiritual training, by this point, they're probably not going to get it. Nagging and condemning and hounding them will just drive them farther away. There comes a time when each of us must release our children and trust God for their well-being and pray that they will choose wisely and ultimately that they will return. Thirdly, the father did not refuse his son. The father did not withhold material blessings from his son. Notice verse 22, But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and be merry. Even though he had squandered half of his estate, his father continued to shower him with material blessings. This kind of tangible expression of love may not be easy, but it is important. One preacher told about a seminary student who was getting ready to become a pastor. And he recalled, when I was 18 years old, I went into a partnership with a buddy to buy a tavern And it broke my dad's heart. He said, both mom and dad always expected me, uh, though, to come home for Sunday dinner. And he said, dad continued to go uh, drive across town and help me with when my car would start. He said, these tangible expressions of love were what kept me open to them and to God and helped bring me back to where I am today. Don't withhold your tangible love from a wayward child. Fourth, the father did not reject his son. In verse 20, we see the father looking for his son. Look at it. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. That is a picture that suggests that Every day the father was scanning the horizon, hoping his son would return. And he kept believing that one day his son would come to his senses and would return to him. Now, we don't know how long the son was in the far country, but it could have been a long, long time. But the father never gave up. Day after day, for perhaps years He kept scanning the horizon. And perhaps you are in a situation where there has been alienation for years. Perhaps it seems as if things will never change. My friend, keep watching the horizon. Keep praying that God will work in his or her heart. Don't give up. Fifth, the father did not reprimand his son. There's no evidence that the father said anything like, I told you so. Or, how could you have squandered your inheritance? Or anything like that. He didn't throw his mistakes back into his face. He freely forgave his son and trusted that he had learned his lesson. You know, it's easy for a hurting parent to want to make a wayward child pay for what they have done. But we need to forgive and forget 
Why? Because that's what God does for us. That's how God treats us. Yes, God hates our sin, but He loves us unconditionally. And this story is a picture of His love. And that is something we are to emulate. The bottom line of how we are to respond is that we are to imitate the love of our Heavenly Father toward our children. Let me just end with this illustration. If you put a piece of iron in the presence of an electrified body, that piece of iron for a time becomes electrified itself. It is changed into a temporary magnet in the presence of a permanent magnet. As long as the two are side by side, they are both magnets alike. Now listen, if you have a rebellious child, the thing that you need to do is to draw close to the one who is himself unconditional love. Draw near to God. And as you do, His love will begin to flow through you and you will become an attractive force that will draw others, including your wayward son or daughter, unto yourself and unto God. It is only the mirrored image of His character, His acceptance, His forgiveness, His love, that will draw our prodigal children back to us and back to Him. One hurting mother put it like this, Lord, I'm a slow learner, but it's finally beginning to sink in. I cannot control my children or the choices they make. The best I can hope to do is to guide them, to point the way, and then to trust You to help them walk in it. And Lord, I'm equally slow at learning that which I can control. I can control myself, my feelings, words, and actions. I can choose to trust instead of yell and trust instead of worry. Lord, guide my choice making just as I would seek to guide my children's. How do we need to respond when children rebel, when children don't turn out the way we hoped they would? These are principles we need to apply to our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that Your Word gives us instruction on every aspect of life. And Lord, we understand that for some, there is a tremendously painful experience that comes about through children who disappoint. And yet, Lord, we know that uh, You've given us Your pattern. You've given us the way that we need to respond. Help us to love our children unconditionally. That's not to say we condone their sin, but it's to say that we continue to love them in spite of their sin. And Lord, help us to, through that unconditional love and grace and mercy, win them back to you. Help us to continue to fervently pray for them 
and to trust you for them. So, Lord, I pray if there are those today who are hurting that way and suffering that kind of pain, that they might be comforted today through these truths. And, Lord, help all of us as parents to be the kind of parents you want us to be. And we pray for children that there would not be a heart of rebellion. There would be a heart of joy and obedience in following the guidance of parents. So, Lord, help us to do these things as unto you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.